So if you guys want to turn with me to uh, the book of James, we are in James chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 this morning together. If you remember last week, we fittingly, seemingly, uh, talked about uh, our desire to control and know what's going to happen in the future. And yet the fact that we don't actually know what's going to happen in the future. And I had no clue when I was preaching it that this week would be like this week was. And yet uh, something uh, so pertinent to our lives. Again, we see James uh, talking to this group of Christians. He seems to shift his focus from the rich to actually the poor and talking about suffering and what it looks like uh, to have pain in our lives. And so again, it just seems that James knows exactly where we're at uh, even today and how applicable this is for us in the current situation. So James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So this uh, week's passage, here in James chapter 5, uh, James is talking about suffering. And he's talking about how we're supposed to handle suffering. And uh, what he says is so practical, as everything in James has been, and in many ways, if you've been in the church for a while, it seems obvious even. Um, but the challenge uh, in looking at James is not asking the question, you know, where's all the new information, but uh, why is James bringing me back to something that I think I already know about and understand? And it's because James saw it in the church. He saw uh, their knowledge of the truth not being lived out, and he felt the need to say to the church, you need to look at this part of your life again and ask yourself, how am I, and in this case, suffering? There's a sense here, uh, as James talks about patience, he is talking about the day in which the Lord will come when we know that all of pain and suffering is going to be gone. It'll be a thing of the past. And so the believer can at best look forward to what's coming and not totally live in the moment, which is not a great place to be in, right? If you've ever been waiting or sort of in limbo, and, uh, and, and this feeling, this sense is one that our faith is ultimately responsible for, really. Rather than say, oh, you shouldn't feel that way, it seems as though it's because we believe in these things that we feel that way, because on one hand, it begins with this sense that things are not the way they ought to be. And, and if you talk about things that things ought to be, the idea that things ought to be a certain way, then you're getting very close to God territory. Uh, because if you believe in God and if you believe that he's created all of what is here, then you believe that there is a way that things are supposed to be. And even people who would say that they, uh, they don't uh, feel uh, bothered or upset 
by the things that they themselves suffer. Uh, They probably have deep convictions about the fact that this world is messed up and things need to change because of what they see in other people's lives and things that are being done to other people. So we have this sense that things are not the way that they should be, and then our faith tells us, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, you are told that one day they will be. One day things are going to be the way that they should be. They won't be this way anymore. So what do we do in response to that? We just wait. We look forward. We anticipate. James says, be patient. I don't know if you've ever been in an airport when they're canceling stuff, uh, but that's not a fun experience. Uh, I, I'm at the point where any vacation that ends in an airport uh, trip is just like, okay, well, I guess the vacation's definitely over now. It's almost like, will the vacation have been so good that it isn't ruined by the ride back to where you still get home from that and you're like, okay, I'm still feeling somewhat some positive vibes here, right? Uh, Because it's so unpredictable to go to a place like an airport, and then if they start canceling flights, delaying flights, and you are totally not in control of what's going on around you, and you just want to be home. And what do you do in the really bad situations? You make an airport your home. All of a sudden, uh, three chairs turns into like a queen-size bed, and... Uh, a corner with some carpet and near the windows by an outlet is like your new home. And you're like, I'll just spread everything out and this is my home for now and I'll just make the most of it, right? And the sink and a bathroom is your shower and whatever else you do, right? Uh, McDonald's is like a nice meal out uh, together as a family. Uh, Everything changes and you're just you're just miserable. People are miserable. You do not see people coming together, singing kumbaya, playing card games, and getting to know strangers and like, you know, stuff like that, right? You don't see that in airports when people are delayed because uh, we all get in a very bad mood, right? Uh, We know uh, how being in tense situations tends to bring out the worst in people. I'm not going to, I don't really need to come up with any modern day examples. Your Facebook feed is full of them, uh, but it happens, right? And so what do we do when we're just sort of not happy with the way that things are because of pain, because of suffering, but, uh, but God tells us they're not really fully going to get better or change until the day that Jesus returns and you know that all pain and suffering will be gone. Until then, I'm not promising you that this is all going to go away. And what James saw in the church was people who were not handling this time very well. Uh, In talking about about pain and about suffering, uh, we're looking this morning at the steps to basically deal with that, to work through it, the stages of suffering. Because we go through various stages when we suffer, when we go through pain. And they're basically the things that James is talking about here. And in some ways, he's, some of these stages, it's kind of like, don't do this. And in other ones, it's like, focus on this. Try to do this thing, even though it's not easy. But these are the ways that we all process pain and suffering. And James has kind of responses for each and every one of these things. The first thing that happens when pain comes in your life is this. You just manage the pain. Go to the hospital, every time the nurse walks in, they're going to say, what's your pain level at, right? What's our pain level at? One to 10, what's our pain level, right? If you're smart, you'll say 10. I'll give you the good stuff, and I'm just kidding. I've never done that before in my life, but it's probably not smart either. But, um, you know, they'll ask you that, right? Because uh, right away when something goes wrong in life, how do we know? We know because of pain. Pain is our body's way of telling us that something has gone wrong. And it might be physical pain, it might be emotional pain. Uh, we might not even know 
what the thing is that's gone wrong. Much of the time, we don't. In fact, if you, if you ever talk to people who suffer from things like depression or things like anxiety or, or, or those types of, of, of disabilities or issues, uh, a lot of times, all they know is that something's wrong. I don't know what it is, right? And, uh, you know, after lots of maybe sitting down with a counselor or a therapist and talking through it and figuring it out, some people might be able to say, okay, now I know what was making me feel depressed. All I know was I was just feeling bad, like there was something wrong, but I had to figure out what it was. And then, and then a lot of other people you talk to might say, after all the talking and all the thoughts and everything else and even medication, I just don't know. I don't know why I felt this way. It was something other than my circumstances that made me feel that way. There's something about it, though, that when we feel those things, our mind is telling us all the time, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, things aren't the way they should be. And that tells us that we have to deal with it. And so our instinct to manage the pain, generally speaking, is universally the same. Stop the pain. That's the first thing that we do, right? You say, okay, whatever this thing is that hurts, while we figure out what it is, while we deal with it, and hopefully try to fix it and get it out of your life, let's just manage it to begin with. You get a bug bite, what do you do? You slap it, right? The moment that you feel it, you don't even have to think about it. When you think someone's going to hit you, you flinch, hopefully. You subconsciously, your instinct is to protect yourself from something that's coming. What you do instinctively when you are upset, when something wrong happens, what you do instinctively first often says a lot about you. And these are things that we may not even totally be able to control. When we are hurting, we naturally, our instinct, we want the pain to stop. We'll do whatever we can to make it go away. But if you're a follower of Jesus and your focus is on first and foremost, make the pain stop, make this bad thing go away and end, then your faith will be very little help to you as you deal with it. Because that doesn't really reconcile with what the Bible says about pain and suffering. Because the Bible doesn't describe it as simply this bad thing that needs to end immediately. Because there are more than one way, there's more than one way to manage pain. Uh, to be a follower of Jesus means your, your faith is not really just a bottle of Advil that you say, I'm going to take a bunch of these, and, uh, and it'll help the pain go away. It'll help me feel better. It will help me cope with what's going on. Uh, it helps you manage the pain, but not in that same way. And if you don't see that, then you're going to look at your faith and go, my faith isn't really any good for me when the real things in life happen. Or people will look at it from the outside and say, yeah, all that stuff you're saying about you know, God or whatever, that doesn't really make any sense, because otherwise, like, why would your life look this way? Uh, James's response to this, how to manage pain, is the very first thing he says. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says, the way that you manage the pain is not by stopping it, but by enduring it, by being patient as it's happening. That's not a fun thing to hear. In fact, not only is it uh, I'm not going to necessarily promise to take this thing away or stop it, but something is happening through this and it needs to take its course. It needs to finish. You see, there's a difference between pain that comes because something's wrong and pain that comes because something is being accomplished and being done. The example that he gives is a farmer. He says, uh, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
At this time, all farming and agriculture was based on, not on irrigation that we could provide, but on the rain and, and weather. And so there was a, an early rain that was towards the end of October, early November, and that helped the seeds in the ground to germinate and to begin to sprout. And then months later, right around this time of year, uh, there would be a late rain. And that late rain would help bring the crops, especially wheat, to maturity. And what he's saying is he's saying, wait, because something is happening. If you're going to be a good farmer, you have to be patient. You don't have to not care. You don't have to be indifferent and forget about it. That's not what a good farmer does, a good uh, grower of things does. No, they know that there's something happening underground, even though they can't see it. They don't walk out a week after they did all this work and put the seeds in and it rained and go, their coffee cup, because that's what they did back then, and their overalls, and they go, well... And they'll say, this didn't work out. I guess I'll go do something else for the rest of my life. No, that, that's a bad farmer. That's somebody who doesn't know. In fact, maybe plan around that. Maybe plan around the fact you're going to have to wait for a while because something is happening and it's a good thing and it needs to finish its course. So just be patient and endure it. There are some um, parts of the agricultural world where uh, farmers will have whole other jobs because once they do one phase of farming, they really just wait while it does its thing. I was talking to somebody who had started a Christmas tree lot and they said it was, it was seven or eight years before they were able to even begin selling Christmas trees, which makes sense because they have to grow. I don't know if you know how that works. They don't like plant them that big. I just learned that when I moved up here. Uh, they, they have to grow. And, and then, you know, every weekend you can, or every season, you can only cut down so many and then they're done because they got to let the other ones grow. It requires a tremendous amount of patience and a long-term plan. And what James is saying to the church is he's saying there's two kinds of patience that we have to have in life. The first is when someone is doing something wrong or a situation is wrong and it's like, just be patient, have some grace, just try to, you know, let it go and hopefully we can endure this bad thing that's just like a mess, you know. Or there's the patience that comes when something good is happening and you just need to keep your mind fixed on the fact that something is being accomplished in this. Farming involves this kind of waiting, and so does the Christian life. I used to be a terrible gardener, terrible. Uh, I'm not patient. I'm a very impatient person. If you're an impatient person, uh, don't be a gardener, um, especially if you live in like this tiny little track home with a tiny little backyard, and you put like a little, like, box of like a little planter box in the backyard and uh you know you plant a little stuff in it and then just every day it's like oh all right well okay you know and then and then it was like i know i'll set up some some sprinklers that wasn't a good idea because then i didn't have to go out there at all and it was like oh it's already watered okay well maybe if i can i don't know they say you sing to it or whatever um you know i literally rearranged stuff that was planted in the ground i was just like that's just these over here and do that stuff. And I just don't think, I don't think it's a very good gardener. And it's because that's not a great thing to get into if you're not a very patient person. You want to have something to do all the time. It requires patience. And so what James is saying is very simple. Step one, you encounter the pain. And rather than just being like, stop, stop the pain. Stop the suffering. It needs to end right now. God, do that now. Instead of that, he says, you endure. You say, there is something that is happening here. 
Uh, he talked about this in the beginning of James, that God is accomplishing through my suffering and the pain. And as this happens, I know that it is something that is good. It's not just that something's happening, but it's something good that's happening, and it just needs time to come to fruition. So the first thing you do is you manage the pain, and you can either focus solely on getting rid of it, masking it, coping with it, running away from it, being in denial of it, or you can, uh, you can see it as the kind of pain that comes when you say, we all know what this is like, even the laziest of us know what it's like to care about something that's just a little in the future and say, I'm willing to inconvenience myself now for it. Whenever the pain of inconvenience, pain of sacrifice comes, when you have to get up extra early or save some extra money or, or study extra hard, like you, you go, okay, I don't like this, this isn't good, but I care about this thing that it leads to, and that's a good thing ultimately. Stage two is you find the source of the pain. You've kind of dealt with it, you've tried to make it bearable, and then you go, okay, let's figure out what's wrong. Let's figure out what's causing us all of this discomfort. How do I get rid of this thing now? Not just the feelings of it, but whatever's causing it, because there's something at the root of it. James says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You see, the, the thing that we then do is we go, okay, what's causing my life to not go well right now? And, the, and we immediately begin the process of, of judgment. Now, judgment is any time that we stop and say, there is something right, there is something wrong. There's the way something should be and the way that it shouldn't be. And so then we start looking at this thing and we say, okay, what is it that's wrong that's making things the way they shouldn't be? And as much as we'd like to think that we're these objective people, it never ends with a thing. It always ends with a someone. It always ends with people. Because there is no institution or thing that seems totally void of people. And the truth is, you can only get so mad at things, right? And, and, and you can only really, like, even make a thing the bad guy. Whereas people, well, that's a lot more interesting and we can really sink our teeth into that. And so what happens is we judge. The way that we find the source of the pain is we start to go, okay, what's causing it? What's causing it? And this will inevitably always lead us, it seems, to a place of who is causing it. And what's happening here is it's happening in the church. James is saying uh, that, that the people who are suffering are looking each other and saying, it's because of this person that my life's like this. It's because of this person. In the same way that he said, your conflicts are being caused by your passions and desires a few, a few passages ago, when he said, you know, you want something really badly and then somehow it turns you against each other. How does it do that? Because if you don't have the thing you want, you'll naturally, as crazy as it sounds, you'll naturally go, who's keeping me from the thing I want? Or you'll go, that person has the thing I want. Honestly, I just hate their guts because of it. And that's it. We'll do that too. So it always becomes personal. And in this way, it's the same. My, uh, my kids will, you know, if, if one of my kids comes home from school and, and tells me that somebody was like picking on them, you know, like a bully, you know, I like, oh, I get the nunchucks and I go to school and I'm like, all right, tell me who it is. No, I don't do that. But I, I'm like, I'm going to make up for all those people that picked on me in kindergarten. Um, 
they start telling me about how somebody was mean to them or, you know, you know, called them like stupid or something. And, and, uh, and I'm like, you know, I have to do that, you know, cause it's so terrible, you know, and you want them to know that. Um, and, and, and as we talk, they, they're convinced every time that if, if, if there's a kid at school who's being mean to them or picking on them, that the reason why is because that kid is the, is the physical manifestation of evil in its purest form. I mean, it is like, uh, the devil from the movie Legend. Look that guy up, okay, when you get home, okay? And then you'll know what I'm talking about. It is just Satan himself. It's like that kid is the Antichrist, I think, and that's why they're picking on me. I'm telling you they're evil and they should be just uh, put out of their misery or something. And every time as we talk, uh, it's like, okay, why don't you tell me about this kid if they know them and uh, what's their life like and what's their family like? And what the circumstances like, and more times, more, more, more often than not, they'll end up saying, well, I mean, they don't really have like a family. They kind of live in different families. Uh, this, this happened once last year, and, um, and well, it's because their dad's in jail, and their mom can't take care of them anymore, and, um, and they'll like, tell me all this stuff, and, um, and, and I'll say, okay, like, do, and we'll start to talk about how, uh, as much as they want to be able to say, the reason these things are happening to them is because this person is so mean and so bad. I'm like, do you think that maybe some things have happened to this person that are maybe even worse than the things that they're doing to you? Do you think that maybe some of what's causing what's happening to you isn't just them, but it's things that have happened to them, right? In fact, it's when you think of situations like that and you go back more and more, you go, who is to blame? I want to blame somebody. I want to blame somebody because then I can get mad. So I want to blame their, 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 maybe they have a foster family that's not doing a good job. Well, I mean, okay, but what about the the system, right, that, that put them there. They shouldn't have put them there. Well, what about the fact that they didn't, that these parents put them in the foster system? And what about the fact that these people raised these people who raised this person? And it was, uh, you know, and you go back further and further. And as much as you want it to be about people, you're, 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 you're going to recognize, if you really are willing to look, that it isn't about just blaming people. It's not about judgment that goes on to people, even though that makes us feel good. That's not the source of the pain. James is writing to a very different group than last week. Last week he was writing to the, he was talking to the, to the wealthy people in the church. And he was saying to them, when he talks to wealthy people, his message is very consistent. You are not as in control as you think you are. You guys think you're better than the poor people. You guys think that you're in control of your life and your destiny. You're probably going out there with your, with your blogs and you're telling each other that they had blogs back then. You're saying to each other, like, you know, follow these tips and your life will look like mine. And like, I take control and here's what I'm going to do for tomorrow. And I set goals and I make them happen. That's what it is. And he's like, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what your days will look like. You don't know what your money is really going to do. And the message that James gives to the wealthy people again and again is you are not in control. It's an illusion. And the more you think that, the more you're in a dangerous place because you also think that you don't really need God. His message to the people that are living in poverty in the church is a different one. They don't need anybody to tell them they're not in control. Every day of their life says to them, you're not in control. What they need is somebody to say to them, I know you're suffering, I know your life is difficult, but God has allowed you to be in this position. And what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to start blaming the people around you for what's going on. You cannot, I cannot get away with saying this today. Like I cannot get away with saying to somebody who's suffering, especially in a humble position, just stop complaining. It's nobody's fault, you know? But yours, right? Like, I, I, no, like... That is not a compassionate thing to say to another person. 
You know, what James is saying is because what had happened is the church is a, is a unique place at this time. It's a place where the poor and the rich actually are like, like sort of having community together for the first time. And as it's happening, what do you think is happening? The rich people are looking down on the poor people saying like, see, God loves me more than them. This is what it looks like to be, you know, a good, you know, follower of Jesus because that's why I have all this stuff. And the poor people are going like, yep, uh, who's, the pro- who's the source of all of our problems? Those guys. And in fact, now that they're Christians, they're followers of Jesus, they really should stop what they're doing and they really should fix our problems in our lives because that's the reason that we're suffering. These people lived every day being reminded again and again that they weren't in control. They were, they were workers in the fields. They were servants in these people's household. They were, they were laborers who lived all the time in sort of the margins of society, not being important. And God says, you're, James is saying, your tendency is going to be to judge each other. Don't do it in finding the source of pain. Recognize where the pain is really coming from, which is sin and the flesh. And what does he say? And we read about this in the New Testament. Jesus says it. If you judge, you will be judged. This is the judge is standing at the door. Why does he say that, right? Is he actually saying like there's this agreement going on? No, here's why. Because if I think my problems are because of you, okay, fine. Then your problems are because of me. So I get judged now. So then is that what we want, right? Well, we want God to be like coming to these people in the middle of the night in some terrifying dream and be like, you're the reason for all this stuff. It's your fault that things are the way they are. Change everything about yourself. Never mind. And then just squash them in the end, right? Uh, fine. That'll happen to you. All these problems that, that you don't think are your fault, they're your fault now. You're being judged. You're being held by the same judgment. And he says, don't do it, guys. It's a slippery slope and you're not going to like where it leads you. Instead, find the real source of the pain. And the message to the Christian is always the same. If God's allowing you to go through pain and suffering, then the source of that pain, ultimately the goal even in that thing is to say, how does this make me more like Jesus? That we know is the goal. That we know is what we're supposed to do. So what is the source? The source is to look within ourselves then and say, what is here that I root out. Not because if I get rid of enough bad things, God will make my life better. Not because if, I, if I'm a good person, I won't go through more pain in the future. But because ultimately that is the greatest wealth and control that I can ever experience is becoming more like Jesus. It's not about having more money. It's not about having better health at the end of the day or living a longer life. The next thing that we do is we fix the pain. So you you kind of cope with it, manage it, you identify where it is, and then you say, all right, let's take care of this problem so that it doesn't happen again. And what he says to them after, right in the same verse where he's talking about judging, is he says, he, he addresses the thing that we do to try to fix the stuff that's going on in our lives. And it's, it's grumbling. They're like, eh, I'm pretty sure that's not exactly what we do. So here's what happens in the church. Uh, these people are suffering and their lives are not going well. And so they start to look for the problem and they, they identify other people, right? And, and then what do you do? Well, 
I think for a while you try to change what people do, but then you realize pretty quickly you can't change people, which is a really frustrating realization to make. And then you go, what am I going to do? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll talk about them. And I think I can get a lot accomplished that way. And so you then spend a lot of time grumbling, just sort of complaining about, about people. You find the people that you can kind of grumble with, usually the people that are suffering with you, and you just kind of go like, all right, let's spend a while just kind of really sinking our teeth into this problem, and let's get some serious grumbling done. It's kind of, ah, oh, man, they're so terrible, and oh, I can't believe they do that. And I know we talked about this 85 times, but let's talk about it an 86th time because it makes me feel good, and maybe that's what I need to take care of. And, you know, I can't control anything else going on, but I can control this. And maybe eventually if we do enough grumbling, I don't know, somehow, you know, a rock will fall on them or something, or they'll change their ways, right? Uh, maybe that's what will happen. Uh, that's like literally the most constructive thing that you can even come up with when the source of your pain is people. You just complain about them. You can't really change usually the things that they're doing as much as you'd like to. You know, again, there are so many examples uh, right now in our lives that abound of when a situation stinks and you don't exactly know like, where to point the finger, how long is it going to be until we're all just pointing the finger at each other, saying, like, it's because this group of people didn't do what they were supposed to do. No, it's because that group of people is making a big deal about that thing instead of this thing, which they should be focused on. Instead, they should be doing that thing. It's always about somebody else. And so what do we do? We kind of have nothing else better to do. We're stuck at home, so we just grumble, right? We grumble online. We grumble to each other. And we complain. That's our best effort, our best attempt at fixing the pain. And the example that he gives them of why this is such a bad idea is he says, why don't you be like the prophets? The prophets, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The prophets, he says, are a great example of people who endured through pain. Why? Because they did two things. The first, they complained only to God. They did not complain about their circumstances to the people around them because they were called to those people. They were supposed to be a prophet to send to a group of people, and it was a total immersion thing. It was usually their own people that they were called to, which means if you're upset and things are unfair and you're being persecuted, you don't get to just complain to the people around you. And so the prophets talked to God. He was the one that they went to. And so they didn't grumble like people in the church were doing that James could see. And the other thing was that when things were painful and things were difficult, they believed that God was doing something. They believed it, and they believed that what he was doing was right. So God says, I want you to go and serve me and talk to these people. You go, oh, that's pretty good. I got the God of the universe giving me a job to do. I'm going to be okay, right? It's going to be a good job. Day one, nope, not a good job. Okay, so now what, right? Well, they keep going. Even though life got harder for them, even though most of the time people didn't listen to them, why did they keep going? Because... They believed that God was doing something and that it was good, and most of the time they didn't know what it was. He says, this is your example. If you want to know how to deal with suffering and perseverance, 
then be like the prophets who grumbled to God if they were going to grumble to anyone and who endured because they knew that God was doing something good, even when it was something that they couldn't wrap their mind around. You don't stay positive and optimistic because you know that in the end you're going to be able to like have this great story about how you picked yourself up and your life got turned around and everything became better and you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. I talked about this author in the last service. This is where this message gets incredibly boring, so if you're at home, you can tune out. I talked about this author in the last service named um, uh, Horatio Alger uh, at the turn of the century who uh, wrote uh, during the Gilded Age and uh, we called it the Gilded Age because it was supposedly this time that was like, you know, the rise of big business and our economy grew tremendously and everything was great and wonderful, but like a gilded thing, gilded is like a thin veneer of gold over something cheap. Um, but like that, that's kind of really what it was. Because if you look behind the scenes, yeah, there were a few millionaires, but everybody else was living in tenements and working in factories and miserable and suffering. And at the time, this, uh, this author, Horatio Alger, wrote these books, uh, and they were generally about the same type of thing. It was like a young man who was sort of an orphan living on the street or something, and then a, and then a wealthy you know, person would take them in and say, come under my wing, and I will, I will teach you the ways of business in the world. And through their hard work and honesty and integrity, they would become uh, better, right? We love that story in America. We like to think that's what we really are, is, yes, more stories about people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. Who bought those stories? The wealthy people, because the poor people couldn't afford to buy books. And why the wealthy people like those stories? Because they like thinking, I really did this on my own, right? I was positive when it was hard. I worked hard when things weren't easy, and look at where it got me. But the truth of America at the time was not that. It was mostly people in very humble circumstances who were born into them and would die in them. And those people were sort of the machine that kept everything going. And why do we endure? Not because he's promising us that by doing that, we're going to jump to the next level of society. We're going to finally have a home on a, uh, with a picket fence and we're going to have a great life. No, uh, because we believe that God is doing something in us, in the kingdom, and we believe that it is a good thing. And this whole idea of like what actually fixes it is, is this final stage, preventative measures. You get to the point where you've dealt with it, hopefully, you've figured out the problem and you're working on solving it, and then any smart person is going to go, why don't we make sure this doesn't happen again? What can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And so you prevent more pain. You keep it from going, coming back. And this is where James gives literally the most confusing advice in the world. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear. Either by heaven, no, he's not saying just don't curse. I know you're going to be mad when life is hard. You're going to hit your finger with a hammer. Watch what comes out because that's actually the thing that God cares about. This whole thing, you're like, wait, hold on. Is he really saying in the end that that's actually the thing God cares most about? This is not that kind of swearing. He says, uh, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Uh, at the time when you promised something to someone, if you wanted them to really take you seriously, you made an oath. Especially in the Jewish community, you had this very complicated set of rules that you made oaths by. And so you would say things like, I swear by 
by the earth, the creation of God, that I promise I'll do this thing. And then you don't do it. And they go, aha, I gotcha. You promised according to that. So you owe me. They're like, nope, not exactly. Because I said earth, which is not nearly as big of a deal as the heavens. And in the book of complicated oaths, uh, I am okay. And I don't get to, I don't have to do what I said. And they go, oh, oh, gosh, they got me on that one. Shoot. All right. Fool me once, you know, but you won't fool me twice. Right, and then like a month later, they're like, I swear by the heavens, you know, and oh, okay, here we go, this one's for real, and then they don't do it, and you're like, oh, no, now you owe me something, and they're like, no, actually, I swear by the heavens, which are created by God, so technically they're creation, and really still not God, no, not, oh my goodness, fool me twice, you know, that's what was happening all the time, and they had these like complicated sets of oaths, and he says, don't do that. And even then, you're like, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? And this is one incredibly easy part of this passage to totally misunderstand because it's just kind of complicated to know the context of all of this. It might be easy to look at it and say, okay, do I not say four-letter words? I wouldn't say him. I don't think you should. But that's not what he's specifically saying here. Is, is this a passage of him saying, you must live lives of integrity so that like that young man who was pulled up by his bootstraps and, and, and was the example embodiment of the American dream of making yourself into a better person, you will be able to change the one thing you can change, which is how you respond and the integrity that you have. And at the end of the day, people will look at you and they will say they may not have money and they may not have a name but they are trustworthy because their yes is yes and their no is no. No, that's not what he's saying either because no one actually cared what those people said. <laughs> They'd be like, uh, okay, I don't care because I'm rich and you're a servant and I really don't like, I'm not listening to what you're saying anyway. That's usually what happened. What he's saying is this, when you make an oath to a person, a, a promise, and you call on God in any way, his creation, his heavens, him, and say, okay, because this is how it works in life. You go, you go, I promise. You swear on your mother. I swear on my mother. Okay, what have I done there, right? I've just said this, you, taking me seriously is so important to me that I'll swear on my mother. And what, what does it mean if I break that promise? Well, then it means that all of a sudden, sorry, mom, my bad, but you're not as great as you were before because I blew it because I wanted this person to take me seriously. The other day, my son was like, what does cross your heart mean? Why do people say cross your heart? I was like, eh, cross your heart, hope to die. And he was like, what? I was like, oh, yeah. That does escalate rather quickly, that cross your heart thing, you know? And then the, the needle in the eye thing, and it just gets, you know, it goes back. It's weird. But uh, when people made oaths, what they were doing was they were saying, I care more about how I am seen in your eyes, that I'm taken seriously by the person in front of me than I do about the way that I'm proclaiming God to people. If I'm willing to invoke his name into what I'm doing for the sake of relationships, transactions, anything with other people in the community, then I am in a sense uh, caring more about all of this than I am about him. And this is the way that people actually give in in real life. We, we think that the way that people, when they're going through suffering and pain and trial, we think that the way that we give up is we just turn around, we walk away. We go, I'm done. I'm done with it. I don't believe anymore. I'm done with my faith. I, whatever. I'm, I'm done. But that's not actually what we do. We just get worn down and then we find ourselves going, I just care. I just need to care about what's going on here with these people. I need to make life go a little bit better for myself. I need to put a little bit more time and effort and concern into how things are going for me here in my circumstances. If I don't, I'm not going to make it. 
And what happens when we do that is essentially the danger is to say, this world has beat me down so much that it is now, it's more important to me, my pursuit of it, than of God himself. I know it seems weird that we would do that, but that's actually usually what we do. When we get beat down and things get hard, we kind of give up on this thing a little bit and we invest more in this thing because we're trying to salvage all of it. And what he says is, whatever you do, don't get to a point where your suffering and your pain causes you to basically invoke what you have with God and say, like, what can I do to just make this better? What can I do to raise my level of status in this world so that I don't have to deal with these problems again? What can I do to keep this from happening, even if it means lessening my view of God by citing his name into an oath? We are um, in this incredibly unpredictable time, as Matt said, where a week ago when he was talking about not knowing what we're going to do tomorrow, and one of the challenges, I think, as, a, as, as someone who's, uh, who's preaching on a passage like that is, you're like, how do you make this real life to people when everyone's like, yeah, but I, kinda, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow, you know, so... I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to work. Yeah? How about this week, right? Because all of a sudden, it's like I was, I was talking to, uh, to Joey backstage. I'm going to pick on Joey. And I was saying, like, uh, dude, you're getting married soon, man. Like, that's a, you know, and you don't have 250 friends, so there's no way that, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I was like, <laughs> he, told, he has a lot more friends than I do, I can tell you that. Um, I said, I was like, Joey, you're getting married. Like, what are you guys going to do? What are you going to do? You know, I'm sure he loves some people to say that. They're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You know, and he was like, I don't know. And then we were talking about it, and at the end, he said the same thing. Every person I've talked to for the last couple of days has said at the end of every conversation, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's all you say, right? It's like we find ourselves in this situation where all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay. Uh, we are like out of control now. And what do we do? Right? And, and, and the fear that we have, Here's the crazy part. We're not afraid because we're suffering yet. We're afraid kind of to be afraid because now we're suffering, right? That's really what's going on. And so uh, we are so afraid of suffering that we can understand that even though we, most of us, probably all of us, don't know what it's like to have been the people that James is talking to here, dealing with the things they were dealing with, some that lasted a lifetime, we recognize that when we suffer and when pain comes, all of these things still happen. And we work through them in the same way each and every one of us. The question is, is it just about God make it stop? Because if it is, your faith won't make any sense. The world won't make any sense and your faith won't make any sense. Or is it about the fact that you know God is doing something and what he's doing is good and so the most important thing you can do is like the farmer know that you required, you have to be patient. You have to have trust in that thing. I know that your life does mean something and there is a purpose and God is doing something even if you don't see what it is. 